I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. You don't head on down to the range because I told you so. You do it because that's where you belong. It's high noon for Friday, December 10th, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcotour.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. Today is the 324th day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You adopted the idea that truth was relative and based on your feelings. And told the world there was something special about your truth. Whatever felt right was true. Anything you can imagine. Fiction is a reality. And reality is a conspiracy theory. And you like all the things good people like. And believe all the things good people believe. And then you join with those good people. And you all collectively agree that all of you are good people just based on the fact that you all believe the same things. And you come to identify with a false reality because it just feels true and it just feels right. And occasionally in our culture, the people with more power and creativity who have no shame in exploiting this aspect of our current cultural decline will create various forms of media and quote unquote art to play into these self delusions. And one of the most prominent and pernicious ones in the last 25 years has been HBO's sex in the city, a show that imagines itself to be about female empowerment and independence and friendship, but was always simply too stupid and too lowbrow to ever teach anyone anything except for the values of materialism, narcissism, and apathy. And they sold those continuously to women with college degrees in virtually nothing who absolutely loved the idea that they could go through life spending their parents' money on clothing and turn out to be very, very successful and very, very happy. And so the reason I bring this up is because I guess there is a new Sex in the City coming out on HBO, and I saw their little advertisement on HBO last night. It like had the home screen, and it's a picture of the cast. You've got 
Sarah Jessica Parker. And I think the brunette is named Kristen Davis. And that nutty communist from New York who wanted to be mayor, Cynthia Nixon. And in the text part of their little advertisement, it says, life might be full of surprises, but friendship is forever. Now, I am not a Sex in the City connoisseur, but I am absolutely positive that there used to be four of them. So apparently, friendship is not quite forever in the Sex in the City universe. But don't worry, the three remaining friends, that's going to be forever. And yes, of course, aging has happened. Desperation has set in. They are basically wearing funeral dresses in the advertisement. But don't worry, the sun is rising on their friendship once again. And you can look at it and be like, oh, hey, isn't this just a warning about the dangers of materialist feminism? But you can't say that or think that because that's sexist. And hey, if they had an entourage reunion, I would say the same damn thing. But I'm sure the show will be very successful. It'll probably have great write-ups in the New York Times and the Atlantic by the only six people that still watch this trash. And I know generally that this is not worth mentioning on this show, and I don't spend a lot of time on these subjects. But look at this for its propaganda value. Sex in the City has a certain ethic, and it's that ethic exactly that causes so many of the problems in our society that we are facing today, including and especially substituting actual happiness and satisfaction in one's life for shoes. And hey, commies, if all of this is getting to be a little much for you and you're like, is this really all life is about? The answer is no. And what you can do is begin leaving all of this nonsense behind. Just get rid of all the stupid and evil communist ideas. Stop consuming propaganda as if it's fun and fulfilling. You are not actually living vicariously through the characters on screen. It's just not true, no matter how big your closet is. And when you finally decide to let all of it go, what you need to do is migrate back to America. Just make sure that you actually Make amends with all the people you have shamed and bullied and slandered and censored and tried to get fired from their jobs. And then come on back. Just migrate back. We will accept you with open arms because we want more Americans in the project of America, the project of human liberty and self-governance. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Friday high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies. Welcome to the show. Now, yesterday was a good old time. It seems a lot of people reacted well to my attempt at explaining my viewpoint on why Trump has not come out against the vaccine mandates. And if you are the sort of person who finds that fact upsetting, give it a listen. And I just want to take the opportunity to 
thank everyone who enjoyed it and left comments and shared it. And the people who have been supporting the show financially or otherwise, sincerely, thank you. I want to talk a little bit more about the total unreality that has been thrust upon us. And I want to start with this article today in Insider Paper and reported elsewhere. The headline is Facebook asserts in a court filing that fact checks created by third party organizations and used to remove content or to suspend users are nothing more than protected opinions. Meta Platforms, formerly known as Facebook, has admitted in a court filing that its fact checks are merely protected opinions. The court filing was entered in response to a lawsuit filed by the libertarian pundit John Stossel, who claimed that one of Facebook's fact checks inserted on a video defamed him and was misleading. In response, Facebook argued that the so-called fact check was actually an opinion rather than an actual check and statement of the facts. Opinions are protected from libel accusations, releasing the person or entity that made the statements from liability. On the other hand, statements labeled as fact can make the person or entity making them subject to a libel lawsuit for defamation. Whatever decision is made by the court, the filing in the lawsuit are a public relations disaster for meta platforms. The statement in a court filing that the so-called fact checks are nothing but protected opinions places Facebook in a precarious position. If the court doesn't agree with the claim made by Meta Platform's attorneys, then the company is liable for libel and defamation of character. On the other hand, if the court does accept their claim, then it indicates that Meta Platforms has long been misleading its users by claiming that its fact checks were actual checks of the facts rather than someone's opinion. Meta Platforms doesn't actually carry out the tasks it refers to as fact checking. The company hires outside left-leaning parties to supposedly check the facts. For anyone who doesn't hold views in line with the liberal left, it may seem obvious for some time that the social network has its own agenda. The court filing stating that its so-called fact checks are merely opinions proves that Meta Platforms doesn't do any fact checking at all. And they link the paragraph of the filing that addresses this. And I'm just going to read that for you. Beyond this threshold to Section 230 problem, the complaint also fails to state a claim for defamation. For one, Stossel fails to plead facts establishing that Meta acted with actual malice, which, as a public figure, he must. For another, Stossel's claims focus on the fact check articles written by Climate Feedback, not the labels affixed through the Facebook platform. The labels themselves are neither false nor defamatory. To the contrary, they constitute protected opinion. And even if Stossel could attribute climate feedback separate web pages to Meta, the challenge statements on those pages are likewise neither false nor defamatory. Any of these failures would doom Stossel's complaint, but the combination makes any amendment futile. So there are multiple defenses in even this one paragraph, right? They are initially claiming that Facebook could not have libeled or defamed John Stossel because they weren't acting with actual malice. He has not established that they were acting with actual malice, which is basically like saying, well, we weren't calling him a liar. We were just saying that the statements he made were lies. And it wasn't us saying it, actually. It was this other group called Climate Feedback, and we just based 
our opinion that this is false on their statement that this is false. And all their statement said was that everything he said was wrong and a lie. And that, as far as Facebook is concerned, as far as Facebook's role in it, is a protected opinion. So they're essentially arguing that it actually doesn't matter whether what John Stossel said is true or false, and it doesn't matter whether or not the fact check is true or false. What matters is that they have the right to express their opinion that according to something else, what he's saying seems like disinformation. And that's pretty much how they're trying to argue this. And naturally, this is some high-powered attorneys trying to figure out ways that what their client did is not legally wrong. They don't care about the ethics of it. They don't care whether it's true or false. They don't care what any of this is doing to society. And I'm not saying they should, by the way. Their job is to represent their client. But in representing their client, they have made it very, very clear what all of this actually is. And what it is not is a check of the facts and an objective viewpoint that John Stossel is actually saying something wrong. And I'm not sure if it's too difficult to actually make a legal argument about this for for John Stossel to be successful here. But I think if you were to trace along the path of how these fact checks work, this claim of defamation makes sense because really legitimately what they are doing, especially when they fact check almost everything you post, which take it from me, they do. And that was over a year ago. I used to get fact checked on every single one of my posts. I knew that they were all correct or my opinion. And obviously I state when it's my opinion, but I was getting fact checked on every one. And so their opinion that conflicts with my opinion, well, that is just them exercising their first amendment, right? That is a protected opinion. And when they say protected opinion, that's what they mean. Protected by the first amendment. This is legitimate free speech. That's what they're claiming. My speech, though, my opinion, well, that may be protected by the Constitution, but the Constitution doesn't apply to Facebook because they're a private company and they are allowed to leave up or take down any opinion they want. They're allowed to call it false. And if you don't disagree, well, you're not allowed on Facebook anymore. They will censor you. They will ban you. So their opinion, which is based on falsified science and propaganda coming from the people who lie to us about everything, their fiction. Now that's reality on which they can base fact checks. But your position, which may well be based entirely in reality, is disinformation. It's a conspiracy theory. And if you keep going down that road, your posts are going to start getting deleted and then you're going to be put on timeout for 24 hours and then a week, and then two weeks, and then four weeks, and then one day your account will just be gone. And they will turn up the heat on what disinformation means. And eventually you, my friend, will be a domestic terrorist in the opinion of Facebook and Facebook's fact checkers. But don't worry. Calling you a domestic terrorist for posting a legitimate scientific opinion, that's not defamation. But 
censoring your speech and defaming dissenters in a way that would make the Nazis proud is not good enough for Facebook. No, they need to attack the most basic form of speech, which is your ability to vote. This is from Just the News. Last night, Benjamin Yount is the reporter. Dispute over Zuckerberg election bucks likely headed to court after Wisconsin regulators' decision. The Wisconsin Elections Commission has determined the so-called Zuckerbucks are not technically illegal. Elections commissioners on Wednesday sided with a staff attorney who wrote, the commission finds that the complaint does not raise probable cause to believe that a violation of law or abuse of discretion has occurred. Attorney Eric Cardall, special counsel with the Thomas More Society, that's Philip Klein's group, representing the Wisconsin Voter Alliance, is challenging the $8.8 million the Mark Zuckerberg-funded Center for Tech and Civic Life sent to local election managers in Milwaukee, Madison, Green Bay, Racine, and Kenosha last year. I don't think the Wisconsin Elections Commission clarified anything, Cardall told the Center Square Thursday. But Cardall said the decision is needed in order to move the legal challenge to the Zuckerbucks into a courtroom. We just need to go to the circuit court judges and get them to agree that we can't have election officials in Wisconsin taking $8.8 million for increasing votes in their respective jurisdictions without legislative approval, Cardall explained. Cardall plans to file his appeal to WEC's decision in the next four to eight weeks and hopes to have the case before a judge not long after that. In addition to challenging WEC's decision in court, Cardall and the Voter Alliance plan to go back before the Elections Commission to challenge the Zuckerbucks funding under Wisconsin's election bribery law. The 800-pound gorilla is the Wisconsin election bribery statute, Cardall said. Wisconsin Statute 12.11 really shows the commitment of Wisconsin lawmakers that they really don't want people accepting money to induce voters to go to the polls. Cardall said WEC punted on that question in its ruling on Wednesday. Why is this election bribery? Why in Wisconsin do we have a law that says a person can't take money to induce people to go to the polls? Cardall asked. I think the reason is that Wisconsin thinks it's wrong, morally wrong and legally wrong for public officials to go to the polls. Cardall expects to file his election bribery challenge with the Wisconsin Elections Commission soon. And that's where we are right now. We have gone from saying this is the safest and most secure election of all time to a state elections commission arguing that it's not technically illegal for them to have taken private money to return a specified outcome in their election. And there is more election news in the coming weeks. I think next week we're going to see some motion with the attorneys general in the Lindell case. And my somewhat informed impression of that situation is that they are waiting for one of the attorneys general to step forward first. And at that point, more will fill in behind. And I'm very curious to see which person will step up first and do that. Next Wednesday, and this could be a trigger of other action to come, but next Wednesday, there is a hearing in Pennsylvania, and I'm just going to refresh your memory about what that is about. This is the Associated Press published in New York Post from late September the 23rd. Pennsylvania AG Josh Shapiro sues to block GOP 2020 election subpoena. 
Pennsylvania Attorney General sued Thursday to block a Republican approved subpoena to state election officials in what Republicans call a forensic investigation of last year's presidential election spurred on by former President Donald Trump's baseless claims that he was cheated out of a victory. The lawsuit from State Attorney General Josh Shapiro, a Democrat, is the second thus far targeting a subpoena approved last week by the Republican controlled Senate Intergovernmental Operations Committee. Both were filed in the state's Commonwealth Court. Shapiro's office broadly asked the court to block the subpoena because, it said, it serves no legitimate legislative purpose and stems from Trump's efforts to undermine trust in the results of the 2020 presidential election. At points, the 76-page lawsuit targets certain information requests in the subpoena as illegal or unconstitutional and unenforceable. And so what we have here is a completely corrupt Democrat official, Democrat attorney general, in a state run by a Democrat governor trying to make sure that the state legislature, the representatives of the people of the state of Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth, cannot get any of the information they need to properly analyze what was quite obviously a fraudulent and illegal election on many levels. There is pretty broad agreement out there that Pennsylvania might be the messiest of all the states in terms of their elections. And we already know how bad things are in Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and elsewhere. But Josh Shapiro thinks he's going to be governor of Pennsylvania and maybe one day president. So he is dutifully doing the bidding of the Democrat Communist Party in Pennsylvania in their mission to ensure that no one actually understands what happened in 2020. But it's coming either way. So we should keep our eyes on that Wednesday, December 15th. Now, a couple of days ago, Donald Trump endorsed David Perdue for governor in Georgia. And a lot of people got riled up about that because We all know that Brian Kemp is completely corrupt and totally unsuitable to continue being governor there. He is an absolute establishment rhino and uniparty communist. Prior to a couple of days ago, the people contesting him were Vernon Jones, who used to be a Democrat and has since come out very strongly for MAGA, but who also comes with a lot of questions that We're not too sure how to answer. There's also a relatively unknown candidate named Candace Taylor, who seems to be, as far as I can tell, 100% above board and 100% committed to setting things right in Georgia. She may have a bit of a name recognition problem, and she certainly will not be supported by any element of the establishment, but people like Mike Lindell have endorsed her. Now, Trump's endorsement seems like a pretty obvious rejection of the Vernon Jones candidacy. Trump has met with Candace Taylor before, and it is a bit odd that he went and endorsed someone who is firmly part of the establishment in David Perdue. Now, David Perdue, you might remember, did not win his senatorial race on November 3rd, 2020 largely due to election fraud, and ended up in a runoff on January 5th, 2021, that he lost 
after refusing to come out against election fraud that likely cost him the November election. And since then, he has basically faded into the background. But only hours after Trump's endorsement, Purdue kind of switched his tune completely. And this is from yesterday in Yahoo News. Purdue says he wouldn't have certified Biden's Georgia win as Republican effort to bypass future election results intensifies. This is Christopher Wilson, their senior writer. David Perdue, the former U.S. senator and Trump endorsed candidate for governor in Georgia, said Wednesday that he would not have certified Joe Biden's win in the 2020 presidential election in his home state. The latest move from state level Republicans casting doubt on the integrity of future races. Purdue, who served one term representing Georgia in the Senate before losing in a January runoff to Democrat John Ossoff, announced his intention to primary sitting Republican Governor Brian Kemp this week. Kemp is among the Georgia Republicans who affirmed the election results, which were counted three times and showed a close win by Biden. Now, that is an entirely false description of what happened in Georgia and counting over and over and over again the same illegal and false votes is not in any way, an audit or proof that they got the right result. In an interview with Axios, Purdue said he wouldn't have done the same. In the weeks following his loss to Biden, Trump called for a special session of Georgia's legislature to challenge the results, which Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger said at the time would amount to, quote, nullifying the will of the people, end quote. Trump is also backing state rep Jody Heiss, who has regularly promoted election conspiracy theories in a Republican primary challenge against Raffensperger. GOP officials and pundits across the country have been calling the 2020 results into question despite being unable to provide credible evidence of fraud. Now that, again, is an out-and-out lie. This is just fake news, all right? There is overwhelming evidence of fraud in the courts right now, and literally everyone involved in these situations knows it. If this reporter hasn't looked into the evidence, that's an entirely different situation. But to proclaim that they have not been able to provide credible evidence of fraud basically just discounts the entire situation, all of the context. That statement just simply is not true. A Yahoo News YouGov poll released in August found that a majority of Republican voters believe Biden did not legitimately win the election. A number of states with Republican majority legislatures have passed laws, making it more difficult to vote. No, more difficult to cheat. While others are taking steps to allow the party to have more direct control over election results. Again, false. What they are referring to is actual citizens going and getting involved in the election process so they can keep an eye on all of the communists who have already infiltrated the election process. The proliferation of election conspiracy theories also helped inspire the deadly January 6th siege on the U.S. Capitol, the main purpose of which was to try to stop Biden from becoming president. No, it was to delay the counting of false electors. Earlier this year, Kemp signed a bill passed by Georgia's Republican-controlled legislature that limited voting while also transferring powers away from the Secretary of State and instead giving them to a state election board controlled by the same partisan legislature. Under the law, the board can also suspend local election officials with whom it disagrees. Again, this whole thing is absolute utter nonsense. They are claiming that 
the closing of the most basic loopholes that are continuously exploited to steal elections is somehow limiting people's ability to vote. That is absolutely untrue. In fact, none of the laws passed by any of the states even really make it harder to cheat. If they actually wanted to stop cheating, they would all audit the elections in their states and show what the cheating actually was so that they knew how to stop it. And the way to stop it is to purge voter rolls and clean them up so that only actual voters are on the voter rolls. They would introduce voter ID. They would ban unsolicited mail-in balloting. They would ban ballot harvesting. They would get rid of the machines and they would introduce paper ballots that are individual and verifiable and auditable. And none of the legislation that any of these states have passed so far has gone anywhere close to accomplishing that. Some of them do one of those things or a couple of those things in a pretty milk toast way, but none of them actually set out to fix the problem. But the funniest thing about that Yahoo article is that it didn't actually tell you why this is a big deal. So Fox5Atlanta.com, David Perdue announces lawsuit over Georgia's 2020 election, alleges fraud. Days after announcing his candidacy for governor, Republican David Perdue further embraced debunked claims of electoral fraud in Georgia's 2020 presidential race by joining a lawsuit seeking to prove he and former President Donald Trump were cheated out of election victories. The suit claims that fraudulent or counterfeit ballots were counted in Fulton County, the state's most populous jurisdiction, although investigators rebutted the same claims previously. And no, again, that's just not true. Purdue's lawsuit amplifies claims that the former senator has made this week since announcing a challenge to incumbent Governor Brian Kemp on Monday. Purdue told Axios and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that he wouldn't have certified Georgia's 2020 results if he had been governor then, unlike Kemp. Trump has repeatedly savaged Kemp for not doing enough to overturn the loss. After inviting Purdue to run, Trump endorsed Purdue on Monday, saying Kemp has been very weak on election integrity. The suit could further Purdue's effort to sew up the votes of Trump backers who believe the election was stolen as he tries to come back from his Senate election loss, saying that's how he'll unify the Republican Party and beat Kemp in the primary and then Democrat Stacey Abrams. His position that Georgia's 2020 election was wrongly decided isn't new. He called on Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to resign while votes were still being counted in 2020, saying he failed to deliver honest and transparent elections and said if he had been in the U.S. Senate on January 6th, he would have voted against accepting Georgia's electoral votes. But until now, he hasn't sued. David Perdue is so concerned about election fraud that he waited a year to file a lawsuit that conveniently coincided with his disastrous campaign launch, said Kemp spokesperson Cody Hall. Keep in mind that lawsuit after lawsuit regarding the 2020 election was dismissed, in part because Perdue declined to be listed as a plaintiff. Well, that's a strange and indirect admission of guilt. He just said that the lawsuits were dismissed because Purdue didn't sign on as a plaintiff. I thought it was because all the claims were baseless. Well, that's strange. And also, even if lawsuit after lawsuit was dismissed, not all the lawsuits were dismissed. In fact, the one that David Purdue joined is still quite active. And I'm skipping down toward the bottom of this article. 
The lawsuit is largely a repeat of one that Henry County Superior Court Judge Brian Amaro dismissed in October after he ruled the plaintiffs, including longtime Georgia election systems critic Garland Favorito, hadn't alleged a particularized injury and thus didn't have standing to sue. Favorito and other plaintiffs are appealing that dismissal, and that is what Purdue is joining. The new plaintiffs, who asked that the suit be assigned to Amero, say they have the standing to pursue claims that their state constitutional rights to equal protection and due process had been violated. Purdue claims his particularized injury was that he was a candidate for re-election in November, but failed to achieve a majority, forcing him into a runoff with Democrat John Ossoff that Purdue lost. Lennon says, and she is one of the other plaintiffs, I believe. Lennon says she sought to cast an in-person early vote in October 2020, but was told someone had already sent in a mail-in ballot in her name. Investigators with the Georgia Secretary of State's office submitted a report to Amero just before he dismissed the case, saying they found no evidence of fraudulent ballots. False. Based upon witness statements and examination of approximately a thousand absentee ballots and ballot images, the secretary's investigators have not uncovered any absentee ballots that match the descriptions given or otherwise appear to be fraudulent or counterfeit. The legal brief said 1000 ballots is what they checked ballots chosen by the same corrupt officials that carried out the fraud in the first place at Rhino Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's office. And Brad Raffensperger is a legitimate rhino, okay? He's a Democrat that was found by a PR firm and then run in Georgia as a Republican. Now, why would Democrats be trying to do that? Oh, maybe because Georgia is a red state. And if the Democrat is bad enough, they will vote Republican no matter who it is. And so the best way to counteract that is to make a Democrat a Republican. The new lawsuit recounts claims that the investigators debunked, including claims by Susan Voiles and three other auditors during a hand recount that they saw pristine absentee ballots that appeared to have been marked by a computer and weren't creased as they would have been if they had been put in envelopes. The investigators said they couldn't find any such ballots. The suit also renews debunked claims that election officials purposefully lied about stopping counting on election night claiming that once observers left, election workers pulled out suitcases of ballots and counted the votes multiple times, effectively running up the score for Democrats. Now, that is on video, but they still did a debunking. But as we've seen in Facebook earlier, that's basically a fact check, which is basically their opinion. To be clear, no one has debunked the Ruby Freeman video, although Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Wandria Shea Moss, are suing the Gateway Pundit right now, probably to tie them up about reporting any more on Ruby Freeman and her daughter, both of whom committed election fraud on video. Secretary of State investigators said they found no evidence this had happened either, saying video showed the suitcases were normal ballot bins brought out when election workers were told to keep counting. Investigators said workers told them ballot scanners jammed frequently, requiring workers to make multiple attempts to scan ballots and that scanner activity logs confirmed paper jams reported by workers and seen on video. That does not account for any of that. The counting was stopped. People were forced to leave the building. Then the suitcases were pulled out. Counting resumed with no observers. 
and the ballots were loaded through multiple times. That explanation is nowhere near sufficient. Every one of those ballots was illegal, and you can see the vote spike in the results that coincides with that activity. Investigators concluded, therefore, that there was no evidence to corroborate allegations in the lawsuit that election workers scanned and counted fraudulent ballots that had been hidden under tables at the arena. The brief notes that former U.S. attorney B.J. Pock, I guess, maybe it's B.J., I mean, what is this? Reached the same conclusion based on statements made to the FBI and an independent review of the evidence. Seth Bringman, a spokesperson for Stacey Abrams, said that, quote, while David Perdue conducts the conspiracy choir, Stacey will be focused on Georgians, end quote. And if you're thinking, why is Fox News Atlanta basically shilling for the Democrat Communist Party and election fraud and for Stacey Abrams? Well, then you're asking a very good question. And the answer happens to be that Fox was a critical component of selling the lie that Joe Biden actually did win the election. And part of that was calling Arizona super early for absolutely no reason on election night. Now, let's switch subjects completely, but still keep in the back of your mind the fact that the entire COVID narrative is fiction and the reality is a conspiracy theory. This is from Becker News yesterday. Harvard study explodes myths about vaccines stopping the spread, but it's even worse than that. A Harvard study of 68 nations and 2,947 counties in the United States published in the European Journal of Epidemiology is shattering the argument that the mRNA therapeutic drugs being marketed as vaccines do anything significantly to stop the spread of COVID-19. It's even worse than that. As Becker News suggested in September, there is a positive correlation between a nation's vaccination levels and the case rates being reported. The scientific findings are a crushing blow to the argument that the vaccines have a public health purpose and that vaccine mandates are justified. And while we go through the rest of this, recall the study that we talked about a few days ago in The Lancet, where they have found that it is pretty much impossible to tell the difference between COVID-19 and vaccine side effects. And so when we hear these exploding case rates in the vaccinated, what they're really maybe picking up is the vaccine. Not that any of the tests actually work in the first place. The Harvard researcher who co-authored the study, S.V. Subramanian of the Harvard Center for Population and Development Studies, teamed up with Canadian researcher Akhil Kumar to perform the research. Their bombshell findings? Read them and weep. At the country level, there appears to be no discernible difference between percentage of population fully vaccinated and the new COVID-19 cases in the last seven days. In fact, the trend line suggests a marginally positive association such that countries with higher percentage of population fully vaccinated have higher COVID-19 cases per one million people. And Kyle Becker notes that he pointed out the same thing in September, and he's right. This has been true for quite a while. Israel was also one of the most suggestive cases for the above cited Harvard study. Notably, Israel, with over 60% of their population fully vaccinated, had the highest COVID-19 cases per 1 million people in the last seven days. The lack of a meaningful association between percentage of population fully vaccinated and new COVID-19 cases is further exemplified, for instance, by comparison of Iceland and Portugal. 
Both countries have over 75% of their population fully vaccinated and have more COVID-19 cases per 1 million people than countries such as Vietnam and South Africa that have around 10% of their population fully vaccinated. Now, keep in mind, thinking about that, that the definition of fully vaccinated has changed. And in Israel right now, I think it's either three shots or maybe even four shots before you are considered fully vaccinated. And everyone who doesn't fit that definition then counts as unvaccinated. And for them, we are meant to believe that the symptoms they show, which are the same, whether it's a COVID-19 infection or a vaccine side effect, are occurring in the unvaccinated because of the fact that they haven't been vaccinated. But in places like Israel, where they have previously reported 85 to 90 percent vaccination, what this really is, is a misclassification, making people who have had the vaccine but aren't fully vaccinated, which is a term that doesn't mean anything anymore, count as unvaccinated. How bad would these numbers be if all of the people who have been vaccinated to some extent counted as vaccinated in these studies? Now, remember, they just talked in that quote about Vietnam and South Africa that have around 10 percent of their population fully vaccinated. So Becker goes on. Where was the Omicron variant first detected? Botswana, followed by South Africa. Interesting. The study also makes an interesting point about counties with extremely high vaccination rates. Of the top five counties that have the highest percentage of population fully vaccinated, 99.9% to 84.3%, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention identifies four of them as high transmission counties. That's four out of the top five most vaccinated counties are also considered by the CDC to be high transmission counties. And that's important to remember when you hear Rochelle Walensky and Anthony Fauci talk about high prevalence of disease or high prevalence of virus right before they suggest that what we need to reduce that prevalence is more people being vaccinated, even though that is the exact opposite of what their data is showing. Back to Becker. Thus, if you believe that getting nearly the entire local population vaccinated will do anything to stop the lockdowns and mandates, this data should make you think again. The agenda is political, and therefore the solution will have to be political. I am obviously not the only researcher to pick up on this data phenomenon. Justin Hart at the Substack Rational Ground has also mentioned it multiple times. Indeed, he had picked up on the unusual data patterns in July, and Justin Hart was actually on the podcast last summer in 2020. Although I'm not on Twitter anymore, so I don't talk to people like this. It is what it is. The above cited Harvard study provides a snapshot of the data points that illustrate the marginally positive association. And he's linked the uh, graphs and charts. He says this looks more than marginal to me at the U.S. county level. There appears to be no discernible relationship between vaccination levels and case rates. There you have it. There is no real world evidence that vaccines stop the spread of COVID-19. However, this isn't stopping Pfizer's CEO from making the unsubstantiated claim to sell the booster shots. Although two doses of the vaccine may still offer protection against severe disease caused by the Omicron strain, it's clear from these preliminary data that protection is improved with a third dose of our vaccine, Pfizer's CEO Albert Borla said. 
Ensuring as many people as possible are fully vaccinated with the first two dose series and a booster remains the best course of action to prevent the spread of COVID-19. This is an absolute lie. It should be no surprise that a big pharma CEO would deceive the public about his product. But the U.S. government and the corporate press turning a blind eye to the false claim should have Americans outraged. As a legal team recently explained in a lawsuit against the FDA, the vaccines, quote unquote, have absolutely failed in preventing the spread of COVID-19. Thus, there is no legal, moral or public health justification to mandate vaccines. And he links to the Harvard study below. Now, I want to read a really stellar piece of propaganda from the communist rag, The Atlantic, that is owned in part, at least, by uh, Lauren Powell Jobs, who is Steve Jobs' widow. And amusingly, my friend Josh Lacash from the Wrong Opinion podcast sent me a post that he put up today, a picture of Miss Powell Jobs with Ghislaine Maxwell. So it's always good to keep that sort of thing in mind when you are pondering the views of the global elitist writers of the Atlantic. This is by Rachel Gutman yesterday. The pandemic of the vaccinated is here. Even before the arrival of Omicron, the winter months were going to be tough for parts of the United States, while COVID transmission rates in the South caught fire over the summer. The Northeast and Great Plains states were largely spared thanks to cyclical factors and high vaccination rates, even though that's not true. But weather and the patterns of human life were bound to shift the disease burden northward for the holidays. And that was just with Delta. Enter a new variant that appears better able to evade immunity, and that seasonal wave could end up a tsunami. Back in July, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky announced that COVID had become, quote, a pandemic of the unvaccinated, end quote. An unfortunate turn of phrase that was soon picked up by the president. Now the flaws in its logic are about to be exposed on what could be a terrifying scale. Unvaccinated Americans will certainly pay the steepest price in the months to come, but the risks appear to have grown for everyone. The pandemic of the vaccinated can no longer be denied. And so far, she's basically just slipping in these obvious problems with the prior truth amidst confirmation of the prior truth. The 60% of Americans who are fully vaccinated, 60%? Oh, she's not counting the kids. Now the kids are part of the overall number. Oh, the 60% of Americans fully vaccinated could soon find that their lives looking very different for much of the summer and fall. Those who had received two Pfizer or Moderna doses or one Johnson and Johnson shot were told that they were essentially bulletproof, especially if they were young and healthy. Well, what? Young and healthy people were already essentially bulletproof. And there has never been any reason to think otherwise. But preliminary data from South Africa and Europe now suggest that two vaccine doses alone might still allow for frequent breakthrough infections and rapid spread of the disease, even if hospitalization and death remain unlikely. But of course, they don't remain unlikely. They are just as high for the vaccinated. In fact, they are more high for the vaccinated if you begin actually counting everyone who has taken one of these shots as vaccinated, getting three shots or two shots plus a previous bout of COVID seems to offer more protection. Oh, those are the safe options. Got it. 
For Saad Omer, the director of the Yale Institute for Global Health, that's enough evidence to justify changing the CDC's definition of full vaccination. Oh, wow, that's interesting. They find that the original dose of vaccination doesn't do anything. So what they do is recommend more vaccination and then change the definition of what it is to be fully vaccinated. That's the right move, according to Yale and according to the CDC, who they just showed used an unfortunate turn of phrase by calling it a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And that also turned out to be not true. But hey, trust them. They're the authorities. With Omicron and the data emerging, I think there is no reason why we shouldn't have a pretty strong push for everyone to have boosters, he told me. At this point, the CDC has recorded that less than a quarter of adults who are fully vaccinated under the existing definition have gotten a third shot. That leaves about 150 million people who are vaccinated but unboosted. Given that the people in this group are less protected against infection, they're at greater risk of passing on the disease to unvaccinated or partially vaccinated kids, as well as to unvaccinated or immunologically vulnerable adults. None of that is true. They will also pass the coronavirus more readily among themselves. Oh, so that's what it means to be fully vaccinated now, but without the booster. So really, we have to change the definition so that we can preserve the idea that being fully vaccinated actually offers a level of protection when absolutely every bit of evidence in the entire world says that it does not. Settings that might have seemed previously safe for vaccinated folks. Oh, folks. Say a restaurant or performance venue that strictly checks vaccination status could become fertile grounds for transmission because the people inside them are more likely to catch and spread the virus because they're not boosted. Indeed, anecdotal reports already suggest that large indoor gatherings of fully vaccinated people can become super spreader events in the age of Omicron. Oh, well, that seems like maybe something's wrong with the vaccine, you communists. Population level immunity could suffer in another way, too, Omer said. People who were previously protected because of a prior infection could now be quite vulnerable to getting reinfected and passing on the disease. In fact, it's possible that the only parts of the country where community transmission might be blunted are those that faced devastating early waves of the virus and subsequently had strong vaccination rates, mostly a handful of areas in the Northeast. You got that? Now you're only safe if you had the virus and you have taken three vaccination shots, even though there isn't a shred of evidence anywhere in the world that backs that up. And there is not a shred of evidence anywhere in the world that says a person with a previous infection and thus with antibodies should be vaccinated at all. It's really very, very challenging to consider how those differences might play out. Joshua Schiffer, a disease modeling expert at the Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Center, told me. Oh, it's very challenging to consider that. Is it, Josh? Got it. What a bold and powerful evidence-based statement. Here's the upshot. Each fully vaccinated person might still be at minimal risk of getting seriously ill or dying from COVID this winter, but the vestiges of normalcy around them could start to buckle or even break. 
In the worst case scenario, highly vaccinated areas could also see, quote, the kind of overwhelmed hospital systems that we saw back in 2020 with the early phase in Boston and New York City, end quote. Samuel Scarpino, a network scientist at the Rockefeller Foundation's Pandemic Prevention Institute, told me. If only a small percentage of Omicron infections lead to hospitalization, the variant is still spreading with such ferocity that millions of people couldn't need a bed. Okay. The only times that ICUs are full anywhere is after their capacities have already been reduced. That is a cold, hard fact about reality that communist rags like the Atlantic still cannot quite grasp. And for the thousandth time, let's please note and understand that not once in this entire pandemic has there ever been a case of a patient being triaged for care anywhere. And we probably would find, if the protocol stopped being remdesivir, that we wouldn't need all those beds because we wouldn't need all those ventilators because remdesivir is causing the need for both. And what else is causing the need for both? When people come in, and they test positive for COVID, they're told to go home and self-isolate and good luck. If anything bad happens, come on back in when it's too late. Such a scenario would be especially dangerous if those millions of people all need the bed at the same time. Omicron is so transmissible that cases could peak across the country more or less in tandem. Schiffer and Scarpino both said, which would make it harder for the U.S. to shuffle personnel and ventilators to particularly hard hit areas. And what's going to make them all happen at the same time? Oh, it's probably the booster program, to be honest. ICU capacities in some states are already stretched thin because they reduced their capacity by 75%. And healthcare workers are resigning en masse because of the vaccine mandates commie so the harms could be even worse if we don't get serious if we don't get the masks on if we don't get testing up we're going back into lockdown again because people will be dying in the hallways of hospitals scarpino said the prospect of such a large surge in hospitalizations is quote keeping me up nights to be honest schiffer told me and again you can believe schiffer because he works at the rockefeller foundation's Pandemic Prevention Institute. This all would be mitigated if Omicron turns out to cause significantly milder disease than Delta. Still a possibility, but far from confirmed, even though all the evidence says that. And if the vaccine's protection against severe disease holds strong. Oh, yeah, that's what we're depending on. But even in that sunnier version of the future, cases are almost certain to increase in highly vaccinated areas and under vaccinated ones alike and bring with them a host of disruptions to daily life. Schiffer suggested that in areas with sufficient political will, most highly vaccinated ones, high case rates could spur local leaders to institute new shutdowns. In any event, fully vaccinated people are still required to isolate for at least 10 days after a positive test, and anyone they've been in contact with might have to stay home from school or work. It is crazy that they still say things like required to isolate. Where in the world is that happening? <laughs> Honestly, if I got a positive test, I would chill out for a few days until I was better. If something went wrong, then, hey, you know, maybe it's time my card was punched. 
but I really don't think so. And the overwhelming likelihood is that I would be back at normal life in two days. A positive test in a classroom could send dozens of kids into quarantine and keep their parents out of work to care for them. So the solution, of course, to the Atlantic and to the guy from the Rockefeller Institute for Pandemic Prevention, think that the way to make sure that kids don't go in quarantine and parents don't have to miss work is to just shut down the schools and the jobs beforehand. Because if everybody stays home from school and everybody misses work, then nobody is missing work. Fiction is reality, and reality is a conspiracy theory. John Zellner, an epidemiologist at the University of Michigan, told me that massive disruptions caused by surging Omicron cases this winter could force Americans to reconsider these sorts of procedures. Oh, there might be a, a, a national conversation about it again. Oh, no. Whatever the effects on vaccinated Americans, the Omicron fallout is going to be much more severe for everyone else. Oh, in places with low vaccine coverage and strong anti-shutdown politics, inconvenience could be replaced by mass death and even greater grief. (laughs) These people are absolutely insane. And the devastation will almost certainly be greater on average in rural communities, poor communities, and communities of color. It's unvaccinated people who are going to be at the worst risk for the worst outcomes. And it's also going to be the folks who don't have the ability or the luxury to quarantine or just kind of hide out when it looks like the numbers are getting too high, Zellner said. Oh, yes. Once again, the most privileged people in the world are the ones that just get to stay home and hide out. From the presence of a very mild China virus, people working multiple jobs might not have time to get a booster or sick days to use while recovering from side effects. So, of course, we better lock down. People who live in areas that are underserved by hospital systems will have more trouble finding a bed and receive worse care if they do get sick. Well, that's kind of insulting to those local hospitals, isn't it? What would happen if you just gave them all ivermectin, dum-dum? None of these futures are yet written in stone. The scope of the coming hardship will depend on how capable Omicron is of causing severe disease and death. And if it turns out it's not capable at all, except for in the vaccinated people, well then, uh, I never wrote this article. And though Omicron seems to likely overtake Delta, cases are still low enough with Omicron that we can have a big effect if we act early, Scarpino said, though Acting early was last week. (laughs) You see that? (laughs) I'm the one who's been saying this whole time that we need to lock down all the time. And if people had just listened to me before, then we wouldn't have this problem, even though the problem is getting caused by the vaccine and nothing could be more obvious. All right. One month ago, one could still pretend that the burden fell on those who lived in some other place far away from vaccinated people in vaccinated communities. Now that delusion looks shakier than ever. Oh, it's so terrible. We all listened. We all complied. We all got the vaccine. We all told everybody to get the vaccine and we all boosted ourselves. And still the disease is coming for us. That's right. Hide again, commies. Good luck with that. I am no longer even sure what to think about these old storied magazines like The Atlantic 
or the New Yorker, the old papers of record, all of it has just come up as complete and total global communist trash. This brand of journalism is not journalism. That is one of the most embarrassingly dishonest and stupid pieces of writing I have ever read in my life. The Atlantic should be embarrassed. Of course, they don't have the ability to be embarrassed anymore because they are 100% bought and sold. They are doing the job they are paid to do, the job they are told to do, the job they are ordered to do, and nothing else. There is not an ounce of intellectual content in that article. That is so pathetic and so blatantly corrupted that it becomes obvious that these brands are at their end. There will be no more place for this nonsense. And they have completely destroyed their reputation well beyond repair. And that's not even the worst thing the Atlantic published this week. Yesterday, they published a piece by Caitlin Tiffany called The Great, parentheses, fake child sex trafficking epidemic and then proceeded to shill for the idea that child sex trafficking is a conspiracy theory. You got that? Fiction is reality. Reality is a conspiracy theory. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'mYourModerator.Substack.com and the merch site is CancelCouture.com. You can also go direct to that at Shop.Spreadshirt.com slash Cancel dash Couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. as moderator for tonight's broadcast. 
In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!